Our gospel reading today comes from Luke chapter 19. After he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethphage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus. And after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. This is the word of the Lord. The Palm Sunday story is very familiar. Our hymns are celebratory. All glory, Lord, and honor to thee, Redeemer King. And we see our children waving the branches of palm trees before Jesus as he rides triumphantly toward Jerusalem. Did you notice, as I read here from Luke, that there are no palms, no branches of any kind mentioned in Luke's version of the story? Of the other Gospels, and here's the answer, only John mentions actual palms. The others write of leafy branches of some unspecified kind. But in Luke here, only the cloaks are spread on the ground before Jesus. No palms at all, but still it's a joyous and joy-filled occasion for all the followers of Jesus. We do not know what their expectations are. Surely they know Jesus well enough by now. They don't think that he's come to oppose the Roman occupation, nor to challenge in any kind of political way the temple system that so oppresses them. But their celebration of Jesus' ministry is surely indicative of hope and of the certain knowledge that human life is now different, radically changed forever by Jesus' very presence in the world. Jesus knows that his earthly journey 
is drawing to a close. He's ready and prepared now to face his inevitable death, and he knows that the place of his death will be Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city of so much hope and so much sorrow. The city that Jesus, he says, would have gathered beneath his loving wings, sheltering her like a mother hen protects her children. And just a few verses after the one we have just read, Jesus will weep over Jerusalem, deeply grieving that the city and its people still will not accept the truth and the salvation that Jesus offers to them. So on what we call Palm Sunday, he descends to the city from the Mount of Olives, where he and his disciples have spent many hours and days together. Jesus teaching them the ways of God, the ways of healing, the ways of peace, compassion, love, and abundant life. Now the Mount of Olives was a place of burial for the Jews, a place just outside the city where Jerusalem in all its splendor can be clearly seen, a place of peacefulness, quiet fellowship, and prayer with his disciples. Such locations are clearly not incidental. They play an important and a symbolic role in the story of our Lord's life, ministry, crucifixion, and resurrection. As Jesus descends from the mount into Jerusalem, he moves from the close-knit community of his closest disciples and friends and into the much broader but still at this point supportive community of his many followers who celebrate his entry into the city. We are told because of the many deeds of power that they have witnessed. His ministry continues to be about the ordinary people. Although this is his triumphal entry into the holy city, a time of celebration and a glorious recognition of Christ's kingship, it is firmly rooted in the lives and experiences of everyday people. Like Christ's humble birth and childhood, his ministry with the poor, the broken-hearted, the broken-spirited, the rejected, and the sick. His entry into Jerusalem, though triumphal indeed, is still about the ordinary, about you and about me. There are no servants to prepare the mounts that he will ride, just his close friends and disciples whom he recognizes as social equals. No trumpets and choirs line the route, but just the people who have seen his miracles and healings, his deeds of power. Jesus sits then on the cloaks of his disciples, which they have spread on top of the colt. Now just think for a moment about this colt. If any of you ride horses, and I know that some of you do, <laughs> probably quite a few, 
Would you choose a young colt that had never been ridden before to parade sedately into the holy city? I don't think so. <laughs> There's some miraculous power at work here, some curious bond with this young animal that allows Jesus to ride him. Back to these cloaks now. Jesus is actually physically in touch with the disciples' garments, which they will surely wear again. And then the colt walks on the cloaks that line the road. The people who lay their cloaks down, they too will surely wear these clothes again, awed by the very idea that the Lord, the divine king, the Messiah, has traveled upon them. And these are not ceremonial robes or cloths woven with gold, but the clothes of the people, the people that Jesus has loved and who have come to love and believe in him. As we hear about the garments that the people spread before Jesus, I'm reminded of the woman who was healed by the very act of touching Jesus' clothing and of the people who were later healed by just touching the handkerchiefs and aprons that Paul had touched. Who can know what healing power lay in these garments, what life-giving, life-enhancing love lay in the touch and the presence of the Lord? And then the singing and the shouting begin. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. I imagine that this is a glorious hymn. These words that echo so closely Psalm 118, which surely would have been a sung psalm. Can you hear the joy of the people gathered together to acknowledge and celebrate that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the savior, that the ways he had, has taught will bring peace and glory to heaven and to earth. The people are acknowledging here Jesus as Messiah, associating him and his ministry with God in heaven. With their acclaim, they shout that there is now peace in heaven. And there is glory in the highest heaven. These joyful words echo the songs that the angels sung at the time of the birth of Jesus. Words that glorify the coming of the Messiah as a little child. And now he enters fully into his glory on the road to his beloved Jerusalem. Jesus knows that very soon he will be rejected and despised. But for now, riding on this young and inexperienced mount, he humbly accepts the praise and worship that is his due. When the Pharisees object, demanding that Jesus put an end to the chanting, as he does so often, Jesus gives no direct answer. As so many times before, Jesus does not argue with his critics. 
He does not justify himself or claim that he has a right to the praises the people are calling out to him. His answer is not an answer. He will not engage or object. Indeed, he allows his critics to maintain their dignity too by refusing to escalate a potentially very tense situation. But his answer is abundantly clear. Now I can imagine Jesus looking around, considering carefully what to say. And then the response, the power of this response. I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. What an answer the stones or the rocks would cry out. The earth itself would sing praises to God and would confess Jesus Christ as Lord and King. What is more ordinary and everyday than stones, especially in a land where the ground is rocky and where the farmers had to deal constantly with rocks in the fields? I'm sure you've seen pictures of the Holy Land a rocky, stony place to be sure. We encounter stones often in Bible stories. They must have been a constant part of the landscape. Think of the stony ground that the seed fell on and did not thrive. Remember Peter, the rock on whom I will build my church. Stones and rocks play a prominent role in the Old Testament too. Jacob lies on a stone for a pillow. God places Moses in the cleft of a rock when he passes by him. Stones, too, are used as lethal weapons. The shepherd boy David chose smooth stones to slay Goliath. And Jesus and his disciples have lived under the constant threat of being stoned, of having the stones turned against them. But now Jesus says, even the stones would shout out in praise and in joy, even the most commonplace, inert, solid objects that we can imagine would rise up and glorify God. If you really think about this, the image can be quite terrifying when stones and rocks begin to move, something quite awesome is about to take place. When the earth quakes and speaks, she does so in a way that brings devastation, destruction, massive change. Is Jesus saying, let the people speak? Do not suppress their need to praise and worship God or truly dire events may overtake us. Is this still the message? Where people have no way or will to experience and express their joy in divine love, where their spirits can find no way to elevate towards God, the very nature of this life that we know may change and become unrecognizable. Let the people speak. Let them praise and glorify God. 
It is good and right to glorify God and to celebrate the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem, the holy city. Even if the crowds will turn against him, because he cannot be what they ultimately desire, that is, a king who will destroy and rule by the sword, allow them, for now, to fulfill their need for worship. From the very ordinary, we reach for the divine. In the Reformed tradition, we do not use icons and statues to raise our hearts and spirits to the Lord. We lift our hearts from the ordinary, everyday things of life. We are all disciples of the Lord, whatever our position in life. Like the disciples, we are friends, sisters, and brothers to our Savior. Jesus would not disdain to touch our garments. We must raise our ordinary voices in constant praise, in constant love and hope. If we as a people fail to do so, if we lose our ability to send our spirits and our voices heavenward, we risk the very rocks crying out. There's a very wonderful praise song with these marvelous words. If we keep our voices silent, all creation will rise and shout. If we fail to praise you, Father, then will the very rocks cry out. It is right and good to cry out in praise to the Lord. More than that, it is necessary to our own individual salvation and necessary to the life of God's community on earth to sing with the crowds lining the way from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Amen. <laughs>